I want to thank you all for coming tonight to Theology on Tap. Um, what I'm going to do is, as presumably you know, the topic or the title of tonight's talk is Don't Impose Your Morality on Me, Relativism and Other Errors. But I'm going to begin the talk um, after the prayer uh, with just a few minutes talking about um, our Holy Father. Uh, and the prayer that I'm going to use is actually uh, the sixth day of a novena that the U.S. Bishops' Conference uh, made available on their website. And you can, st you can start at any time. There's no um, fixed requirement. In Rome, the official nine days of mourning, novendiales, they're called, are actually beginning tomorrow. Now, a lot of other people, uh, like we started the novena on Saturday night. Um, some people have started during the week and so on. So if you're interested in following this novena yourself, you can just go to the website, usccb.org, and download it there. Uh, but what I'm going to use is where we're at, my family is at, which is the sixth day. The, Petri, the Petrine Ministry of Mercy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. A reading from the encyclical letter, Ut Unum Sint, that all may be one, of John Paul II. As the heir to the mission of Peter in the church, which has been made fruitful by the blood of the prince of, princes of the apostles, the Bishop of Rome exercises a ministry originating in the manifold mercy of God. The authority proper to this ministry is completely at the service of God's merciful plan, and it must always be seen in this perspective. Its power is explained from this perspective, associating himself with Peter's threefold profession of love, which corresponds to the earlier threefold denial. His successor knows that he must be a sign of mercy. His is a ministry of mercy, born of an act of Christ's own mercy. The Church of God is called by Christ to manifest to a world ensnared by its sins and evil designs that, despite everything, God in his mercy can convert hearts to unity and enable them to enter into communion with him. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Eternal rest grant unto him, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon him. Let us pray. All-powerful God, you made Pope John Paul your servant, the guide of your family. May he enjoy the reward of all his work, and share the eternal joy of his Lord, who lives and reigns with you forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. How many of you uh, got up at 3 o'clock this morning to watch the funeral? Okay. How many of you got a nap since then? Oh, college kids. Oh, no, you did. Okay. Um, the funeral of John Paul II was, well, it was several things. First of all, it was the largest funeral in world history as you may have heard already, and I'll talk about, a little bit about that um, in a minute. Um, there were hundreds of thousands of pilgrims in the immediate vicinity of St. Peter's um, Square. St. Peter's Square itself can only hold about 300,000 people, 
I say only because of how many people were actually there. And then um, if you've seen pictures, you know there's a street that goes away from the square, Via della Conciliazione. Uh, in that area, there were about 800,000 people. And throughout Rome, there were another million and a half or more people watching on screens. They had set up uh, in various piazzas and so on. So in Rome itself, there were at least two million people watching. And then they estimate that the TV audience watching it live was over two billion people. So it was um, just in terms of people who were watching and, and taking part um, in that way, the largest funeral in world history, let alone all the dignitaries, the, the, I think four queens, five kings, 70 presidents or heads of state who were all there um, to pay their respect to John Paul II, including President Bush, uh, President Clinton, and President Bush, uh, the, the former President Bush, um, and others were all there to, to honor um, this pope. Um, I think the question that a lot of people, especially in the media this week, have been asking um, at, since the Holy Father died last Saturday um, and pilgrims began flocking to Rome to see, his, to see him lying in state and then to partic participate in the funeral, a lot of people in the media have been asking, you know, why? I mean, what's, I mean, this, I mean, John Paul II was an old man, 84. He was obviously frail and suffering um, from physical infirmity. How was it that some estimated 4 million people came to Rome this week to see this man. Most of them, um, I've heard three quarters of them maybe, were young people. Um, and by John Paul II's definition, that means um, 18 to 35, FYI, okay? Not to rain in anybody's parade, but... Uh, um, so, I mean, especially young people, because, you know, as, as all of you know, um, especially those of you who do fit within the age range, Today, our society, especially Generation X and then, and then Y, um, as well as, I guess, the baby boomers too, really all the generations alive today, uh, see, it seemed that they would really not care for this man because of what he stands for and the truths that he's proclaimed throughout his pontificate. And yet, as we've seen again, just the opposite is the case. There's a, on, on one website, there was a letter from a priest in Rome um, that, was, that was posted on this website. Hugh Hewitt is a talk show host out of California, um, and he posted this website because somebody who knows this priest forwarded it to him. The priest's name is Father Peter Mitchell. He's from Milwaukee, but he's a priest for the Diocese of Lincoln, Nebraska. I, I graduated from Steubenville with his sister, Liz, and we both studied in Rome at the same time as well. Liz and I did. So last night I saw this. I called Liz to tell her your brother's... Uh, lengthy email about his experiences so far this week is online and she uh, she told me I was there we just got back on Tuesday uh, she had been in Rome for Easter and then they weren't leaving until two days ago um, so they were there when the Holy Father died and they, they got to see his body lying in state on Monday and, and we just were able to talk briefly because um, she had guests but uh, it was um, obviously for her uh, and a profound experience to be able to be there she having studied as well in Rome for um, three or four years. So why, why is this man so attractive? Um, during the funeral, if, uh, for those of you who watched it, you know this, several times, uh, some 10 times, the crowd interrupted the mass, especially during the homily. Uh, uh, when Cardinal Ratzinger was giving the, gave the homily, he officiated at the mass. Um, they interrupted him numerous times because he, what he was saying was especially poignant and the crowd just erupted in spontaneous applause. And then near the end, after the Mass was over, but right before the commitment um, liturgy, 
the crowd just started, because there was a little gap in time, the crowd just started chanting um, Giovanni Paolo in Italian, John Paul, um, and uh, Santo, 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 which means Saint, Saint, Saint. There were signs, you may have seen them, Santo Subito. Um, basically, the translation would be Sainthood Now. You know, they wanted him to proclaim Sainthood Now. And then, uh, to me, the most amazing thing, um, they started chanting Magnus, Magnus, Magnus. And for those of you who know maybe a, a smidgen of Latin, that means great, or in this case, the great. John Paul the Great, they were basically chanting. There have been three popes in history who are called John Paul the Great. The last of them, uh, Nicholas the Great, most of them don't know. George Weigel got that wrong, too, on, on, public, on TV. But J Nicholas I, Pope St. Nicholas the Great, um, lived in the ninth century. So it's been over 11 centuries since a pope has been given the title the Great. And it's by popular acclaim. I mean, there's no, it's not like canonization where there's a process. It's just the popular claim of the people. And with John Paul II, it started at his funeral mass, which is un unheard of since Gregory the Great in the, uh, in the very early 7th century. For, so as George Weigel said this morning, it's been 13 centuries since we've seen what's happening at this moment. And, and I was watching NBC. Uh, Brian Williams said, uh, talked about how uh, this is quite a moment because our normally staid Vatican analyst, analyst George Weigel, um, I'll talk about his book. He wrote the definitive biography of the Holy Father, Witness to Hope. Um, he's normally a very staid man, very low-key. He keeps it calm. He said, our normally staid uh, Vatican analyst, George Weichel, is getting actually very excited here because of, of all the chanting. So he was very moved um, recognizing the, the, the importance or the significance of what this crowd was chanting. Um, so that, that just gives an indication of, of this, the love that the, the people of the church and, in fact, of the whole world have for this man. So again, so what's, what's the fuss, though? Um, and I'm just going to share a couple thoughts, speculations on my part, why John Paul II is, was so beloved in life and is so beloved in death. Um, the shortest answer, the, the, the truest answer, I would say, is because he revealed Jesus Christ to the world. And in the depths of the human heart, uh, every human heart, we are made for Christ. Christ is our destiny. He is the fulfillment of the deepest longings of our heart. And so in the depths of their being, people of the world, um, Catholics, other Christians, Jews, um, Muslims, Buddhists, I mean, you, the Dalai Lama was singing the Pope's praises um, today, actually, in Japan. Um, all these people recognized that there's something about this pope that was very attractive. And, and I think the, the truest answer is because he was reflecting Christ, reflecting Jesus Christ. Um, furthermore, and related to that, flowing from that, he proclaimed the truth of the gospel. He was not afraid to share the truth of the gospel with the world, especially with the young. I mean, I talked about how many uh, young people have been coming to Rome. A lot of people have noted that, that youth, um, and again, using that broadly speaking, um, young people respond to challenge. They want, people to, they want to be given truth, the solid truth in this case of who Jesus Christ is and what he means for all of us. Um, they don't want watered down, politically correct, so to speak, theology. They want the truth. Uh, now, at some level, there's resistance, but in their heart of hearts, that's what they want. And they respond to it when it's given to them, as John Paul II did. 
the message that he proclaimed since the first homily of his pontificate was, be not afraid, open wide the doors to Christ. Be not afraid, do not fear opening yourself to Christ, because in Christ you will find the, fulf the fulfillment of your humanity. Okay, and, and John Paul II, John Paul the Great, uh, proclaimed this unabashedly, without fear himself. Okay? His papacy, um, in my opinion and the opinion of, of many, many people, will not be seen again during our lifetime and probably not for a long, long time after that. We've had great popes for the last, actually, several centuries have great popes. Some of them have been canonized. Others have been, uh, are, are on the road to canonization. They've been beatified. But nobody has been like John Paul II in terms of his, his ability to, to proclaim the gospel to people throughout the world, to reach out to people, to connect with people in, in a unique way. Um, I have no doubt that our next pope and the popes after him uh, will, be, will be great popes. Um, I have no doubt about that whatsoever. But they will not be like John Paul II. Again, there's something about him um, that, that is unique, even um, within the papacy. The final thing I want to remark on, um, I was, as I was reflecting on the Holy Father's passing earlier this week, it occurred to me that as a tr if this man is so attractive, granting the attractiveness of this man, imagine what the master must be like, what the master is like. In other words, if, if the disciple, John Paul II, John Paul the Great, still the disciple, is this attractive and this dynamic and this powerful of a personality and witness, imagine how powerful the person to whom he's witnessing is. You know, we don't see Jesus Christ like we see John Paul II, you know, literally in his actual flesh and blood standing here like I am or, or like you are. But we will at the end of time. And imagine, I mean, just that, that just struck me in a way this week that, that as a, that, Imagine how attractive, or knowing how John Paul II is so attractive, how much greater must, must our Lord be. So, with that having been said, I do want to mention um, George Wegel's book again. Witness to Hope is the definitive autobiography of John Paul II. It, it was, for all intents and purposes, it is the authorized biography of the Holy Father. Uh, John Paul II gave George Weigel. Um, virtually unlimited access to himself. So they, they talked on numerous occasions. They developed a close friendship. And, and Weigel went to uh, Poland and met with people who knew the Pope and traced the early history of his life um, and some of the, the, the background history of Poland all the way up to uh, this edition ends just before the millennium. Then there's a second edition that included the epilogue. And Weigel is going to be writing a new book on the death of the Holy Father and this next conclave and the Pope who will be elected in that conclave. But if, it's, it's, just, it's a great book because Weigel treats, looks at the Holy Father as a man of faith. He talks about how you have to, and this is actually the Pope's words to him, the only way to understand me, the Pope told Weigel, is from the inside. In other words, you have to realize that ultimately the Pope is a disciple of Jesus Christ. A lot of biographies have been written, and I've got some of them, but they take the Pope from a different perspective, either there's a great political leader or, or a man working for peace, but they don't get to the heart of the matter, which is the fact that first and foremost, he is a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what Weigel does, and because of it, he, it is the definitive uh, biography. But anyway, wants to take a look at it afterwards, I'd be happy to let you look at it. Now, uh, moving to tonight's topic. Again, the title, Don't Impose Your Morality on Me, R Relativism and Other Errors. Don't Impose Your Morality is... Um, 
a, a statement that um, some of you, most of you maybe um, have heard um, either used against you or just heard somewhere um, at some point um, in the last couple of decades because it's, 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 a, it's almost a, a cliche now within the culture wars, especially from one side. Don't impose your morality on me. Um, what you do is your business, but what I do is my business. So basically, keep out. You have no right to tell me how I should live uh, is, is basically what the, uh, the statement means. But what, what, what that line or that statement or that mantra, as it's become, points to is really a series of deep philosophical errors which have become embedded in our culture. Okay? There's a number of diff different errors, all of them related, but each of them at the same time distinct, all of them pertaining to truth and our knowledge of it. How we know truth, whether there is truth, and so on, um, and, and how we come to knowledge of what it is. Now, when you start talking about philosophical theories regarding truth, a lot of people will fall asleep, basically. Hopefully you won't tonight. Uh, our culture doesn't have much time for a deep philosophical discussion. Americans are world-renowned for being pragmatists. If something works, we do it, and we do it very, very well, okay? Uh, which is not always a bad thing. I mean, obviously, uh, our, our nation, our culture, uh, has done a lot of good for the human condition, for ourselves and other people throughout the world. But the, the dark side of that pragmatism is we're not much into abstract philosophical discussion, okay? Um, however, the fact is abstract discussions, academic discussions, so to speak, which seem to be unrelated to the real world, have real and decisive implications for the real world. Okay? Ideas have consequences, is the way to sum this up. Philosophical theories, right or wrong, once, if they're deep enough and if they become embedded into culture, will produce results. Maybe not in one year, two years, 10 years, or 20 years, but at some point, the, the philosophy that, that embodies a particular culture or society will achieve fruition. In other words, it's, it's, it will manifest results um, within that particular culture. If they're good theories, true theories, they will improve the human condition. But if they're bad theories, wrong theories, they will lessen the ability of people in that culture to experience true happiness, ultimately. I mean, that, that's sort of the, the long-term um, impact, the long-term goal. They make living the human condition more difficult. They impair our ability to, to achieve true happiness, okay? And I'll talk about this um, as we go, okay? So if we want to live the fullest life possible, a life of abundance, as to paraphrase what our Lord said, we need to have the right understanding of truth and how we know it. Okay? Because if we have the wrong understanding, it will impinge our ability to be truly happy in the deepest sense of the word. And so what I'm going to do here is first outline a number of different errors. Then I'll come back and talk about fundamentally the proper way that we know what truth is. And then go back and look at the errors and talk about the errors in these errors. And the first one we're going to look at is the most widespread and prevalent misunderstanding, and that is relativism itself. Okay. Relativism, according to Cardinal Ratzinger, um, who, uh, as I said, said the Holy Father's funeral mass today, Ratzinger has become the central problem 
for, our, for faith in our time. The central problem for faith in our time. Okay? If you, just looking at the, the word itself gives you an indication of what it's about. Relativism from relative. Okay? What we know, or the truth rather, is relative according to your perspective. So I have a certain perspective on the truth, but each of you have another perspective. You can just get it very graphically in terms of imagery. Um, if we're looking at this flower here, each of us has a different angle on the flower, and therefore we all see something different. That sort of gives an indication of what relativism is. We all have a different aspect on what truth is, so ultimately truth is relative to, the, to each one of us. Okay? You see it one way, I see it another. There is no objective truth, it's just relative to our, to our individual perspective, the, the angle that each of us have. Okay? There are actually a number of different forms of relativism that I'll, I'll briefly discuss. The first is total relativism. There is no object, tr objective truth, period. It's just a matter of uh, our own pers particular perspective. Okay? Um, this form of relativism is the least common one. And I'll talk about why in a little bit. Um, it's false in a number of ways that we'll look at. And because of that, it's the least obvious one. More common, though, is religious relativism. Okay? Um, people who believe in rel religious relativism will say, well, there are some absolute truths, but not when it comes to religious questions. Uh, when it comes to religious questions, the truth as such does not exist. Religious views are basically ultimately just opinions, okay? Um, and no opinion is necessarily better than the other, okay? You like Alfredo sauce, I like meat sauce. One is no more right than the other. Well, it is, but we won't get into that. Um, it, uh, I, you like anchovies, I don't on my pizza. Well, that's your opinion, you have mine. I, obviously, one is, is not more right than the other. It's just a matter of individual preference. It's, what's you it's what you like, it's what I like. Okay, let's live and let live, sort of. Um, that's, of course, when it comes to religious questions, but also when it comes to moral questions. Moral relativism is just as widespread, if not more so. Um, again, moral relativists say there are some moral truths, sorry, sorry, there are some absolute truths, but not when it comes to morality. When it comes to questions of how you should live, there is no one standard for truth. It's just, again, what each of us think. We have our own opinions, our own preferences. Like religion, morality, in this view, is a matter of opinion, not a matter of truth. Okay? And again, this is a very common form of relativism, um, very much widespread and rampant within our society. A second general error regarding truth is what I call and what some scholars call moral equivalency. And this regards uh, moral questions in particular. Um, this is like relativism, but it's different from. It's not a subheading, so to speak, of relativism. It's, it's a different form of error. This error acknowledges that there are some moral truths, objective standards for what's right and wrong. Um, some things, according to moral equivalencyists, are always wrong for everyone everywhere. Okay? But what they say is, the, and the error comes in, when they say that some evils are worse than others. They will say that all evils, all, um, well, all goods on the other hand too, are of the same level. That's where the equivalency comes in. All, e all evils are equal. No one form of wrong behavior is worse than any other. 
Okay? They're all on the same playing field. Um, as you can imagine, this issue uh, has came to the forefront, oh, about five months ago, right before the very beginning of November, especially in South Dakota. And of course, I'm talking about the election and specifically the life issues and social justice issues as they were discussed with having a Catholic candidate uh, running for president in John Kerry. Okay? Uh, moral equivalence, equi there is no noun. For, th those who believe in moral equivalency will argue that issues like poverty and capital punishment are equivalent. They're both um, equally bad. Um, and those two, on the other hand, are just as bad as abortion. Okay? So they'll see all issues, all life issues, for instance, as on the same level. No, no one worse than the other. And they appeal to what's called the consistent ethic of life. And I'll talk about that uh, a little bit later uh, because there is a valid use uh, for the consistent ethic of life, but also it's sometimes misapplied as in this case. Okay? Then finally, the third general error with regard to uh, truth and how we know it is nihilism or nihilism. Uh, either way is fine in terms of pronunciation. Nihilism denies not just objective truth, but denies truth, period. Not only is there no objective truth, but there's no relative truth either. Nihilism says the relatives are partially right, but they're ultimately inconsistent. If you go all the way through, logically, there is no truth. Not, there's not even truth for you and truth for me. There, none of us can say that there's such a thing as truth, even uh, relative truth. Okay? It is, again, the most radical error um, in that it simply says that truth does not exist, period. Okay? Because truth does not exist, then meaning does not exist. Um, nihilists are some of the most depressing people you will ever meet because they deny that there is any meaning in life. Because in order to have meaning, there has to be truth. Meaning and truth are almost synonyms. You, when you recognize truth, you find meaning. So if there's no truth, there is no meaning. Um, and so life is basically just a pit of despair, um, as nihilists would have it. Um, however, I have to say again that they are the most consistent. Nihilists are the most consistent. And, and we can talk more about that if you want in the, in the question and answer. But uh, they, they, nihilist philosophers point out how relativists ultimately are inconsistent, they, they need to go farther, and when they do, they'll realize that there is no truth, period. Okay? And the, the very interesting thing, thing to me about nihilists is nihilists argue that there is no truth because there is no God. Okay? Without God, there is no truth. Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Okay. So those are the three general areas, relativism in its various forms, moral equivalency, and then nihilism. Now, having looked at the errors, I want to turn to uh, uh, well, how, what, what is truth and how do we know it. Ultimately, and this touches on what I was just saying about the nihilists, ultimately God is the ultimate ground for truth. The nihilists are right. If God does not exist, there is no truth. Uh, nihilist philosophers, especially uh, French philosophers, if you, any of you remember your philosophy classes, Jacques Derrida is one of the most famous nihilists. Before him, Friedrich Nietzsche, a German at the end of the 19th century, um, was the originator of nihilism. And they have, they have both basically proved that if there is no God, there is no truth. And that's something that we say amen to, basically, because th they're right. 
If God does not exist, there is no truth, and therefore, there is no right and wrong. Uh, Dostoevsky is the famous 19th century Russian novelist, and his brothers Karamazov, one of the characters, one of the brothers, uh, Ivan, says that uh, God does not exist, and therefore, everything is possible, meaning that you can do whatever you want. There is no way to condemn every, anyone um, telling them that, they, that what they're doing is wrong if God does not exist. Okay? He is, God is ultimately the ground of truth. Ultimately, of course, he is truth. Our Lord says famously, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When we encounter truth, wherever it is, we encounter Jesus Christ. Okay? Ultimately, then, all truth is a participation in God himself, in the truth that is God. So in everything, wherever... Uh, uh, for those of you who are still studying, this should give you some consolation. No matter what you're studying, if it's true, you are encountering Jesus Christ. Okay? So remember that next time you're studying for finals. And for, uh, that, but that applies everywhere in life as well. When we encounter truth, we are encountering Jesus Christ. And actually, to go back to the Holy Father for just a minute, that was one of the reasons he could embrace people so well, because he knew that error is really parasitical, on truth. You cannot have, you can never have 100% complete error. It is impossible for anybody to say anything which is completely false because in, in, in the very act, I'm not going to get too obtruse here, but in the very act of, of making an assertion, you're, 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 you're making an, an assertion of being and being itself is true and I'm going to stop right there. But the fact is you can never make a completely 100% error. Error is is parasitical on truth. John Paul II knew that, and therefore, whenever he met anybody, regardless of, of all their beliefs, um, whether they were of an, uh, another religion or whether they were of no religion, um, he recognized that if, if he could find in their belief truth, that's something that he could latch onto, and he could engage them because they had truth um, in his being. There's one story um, that George Weigel tells about the Holy Father Actually, somebody else tells about the Holy Father. John Paul II was by training a philosopher as well as a theologian. He loved philosophy. And even during his papacy, during the summers, he would hold symposia in his um, summer, uh, basically, uh, retreat house, or so to speak, or, or the place he'd get away to, Castel Gandolfo, south of Rome. And he would invite philosophers to come. And there's, there's, somebody tells the story about how he walks in, walked in, um, to one of these symposia that he was um, having at Castel Gandolfo once. And there was, there's a famous late 20th century philosopher, German philosopher, um, Hans Georg Gadamer, who was an atheist. He didn't believe in God. And the Holy Father quickly all but ran over to him. I've, I've always wanted to meet Professor Gadamer. Um, there, even though he was an atheist, there, was, there, were, there were things that, that Gadamer uh, believed in and expressed in his philosophy that was attracted to John Paul II and he could engage him on that level. Okay? And the same tru is true for every truth. Again, that's why I was saying that God is the ultimate ground for our truth. Because God is the ultimate ground for our truth then, we know that truth is objective. Because, because God does exist and therefore there is truth. What I mean by objective is that truth exists regardless of my perspective and regardless of my opinion. Okay? I can deny that exists, I can hold an erroneous view, but the truth goes on in spite of me, and in spite of my perspective. Okay? Some things simply are true 
period. And we see this in the most mundane level, okay? Two plus two is four, okay? That is true, period. Um, the earth is round. That is true. I mean, it's not a matter of, well, it's round for you, but it's flat for me. I mean, nobody says that, okay? Um, there are objective truths in general, okay? The truths of these assertions do not, do not depend on my particular perspective, but they depend on the way things really are, the nature of reality. And it, uh, it pertains to not just things like 2 plus 2 is 4 or the earth is, is round, uh, but also to things like of a, of a religious and moral nature. Okay? Deliberately killing an innocent person is always wrong everywhere for all people and all time. Okay? Jesus Christ is God. He did found the Catholic Church. These are not my opinions like I prefer meat sauce. These are objective facts that are real apart from my own beliefs or perspective. Okay? Um, there are plenty of people, of course, who deny truths like these and all sorts of other truths, but that does not invalidate any of them any more does... Um, there is a flat earth society. I don't know if anybody here knows that. There is a society that believes that the earth is flat. Um, now, these are presumably good people, well-meaning people, uh, but in spite of their good intentions, they're wrong, okay? Um, it's not, it's not uh, rude to point out that their beliefs about the shape of the earth are wrong. Um, it is, in fact, round, and the same applies to matters of religion and truth as well. The reason I think that a lot of us in our... Well, there are two reasons, I think, one good and one bad, why we um, struggle with the objectivity of truth in our society. First of all, um, sort of the, 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 the negative or the bad reason. Truth makes demands upon us. It compels our assent. It's, truth says, you must acknowledge me. In other words, it compels our will. Americans do not like to be compelled to do anything. Okay? Our understanding of freedom is basically one of total indifference to the truth. We want to be able to choose what we think is true. We don't like it when somebody demonstrates for us that this is the way it is because we know that that means that we have to acknowledge that and assent to it. And we don't like being forced to acknowledge or assent to things. Okay? So, so the idea of an objective truth that demands our assent grates against our American sensibility to some degree and, and our understanding of what freedom is. Okay? But the fact is... Our freedom is oriented towards the truth. Okay? Truth and freedom go together. Okay? You, cannot be truly, you cannot be free apart from the truth. Okay? As, as our Lord said in John's Gospel and as John Paul II has repeated throughout his pontificate. Okay? Sure, we can, we can say that there is no objective truth, but that will result paradoxically in a diminished life. Okay? Live, failing to recognize the truth and assent to it and live it results in a diminished life. Now, we don't often see that because we ourselves, who do acknowledge objective truth, too often fail to make that truth part of our lives. But the people who have made truth a part of their lives, who have lived the truth, live the abundant life. And our Holy Father is a perfect example of that. He, he recognized the truth, he acknowledged the truth as ultimately Christ, and he lived that truth throughout his life. And because of that, he lived a, a, a life of, of profound delight and joy and contentment. 
that comes with recognizing the truth and living it. Okay? So the, the paradox there is that people who, who want to deny objective truth think that in so doing and living the way they want to, they are going to be happier. But the, again, the paradox is that they won't be. They'll be actually be less happy because they have, not court, they have not aligned themselves with that for which they were made at the depths of their being, which is, again, truth. Okay. Now, um, the errors that we looked at before, there is actually, and this is the positive, there is some truth in those errors. As I said before, every error has some truth in it. Um, in this case, I think the positive factor is, is, comes from our American uh, good positive desire to respect other people. We are called to respect and, of course, ultimately love all people. Okay? We are called to, to recognize their dignity as, as sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. Okay? This is the grain of truth in relativism. The problem comes in, and it's the problem with relativism in particular, the problem comes in in that we fail to distinguish between the person and the views they hold. And in fact, to love someone and to respect them means that we will desire that they enter into the truth, that they recognize truth and enter into it. Okay? In other words, if, if somebody's holding an erroneous viewpoint and we say, well, I respect their view. Now, we say that, but at, at a deeper level, we're actually failing to love them. When you say you respect somebody's view and it's erroneous, you are failing to love them. Why? Because, again, we are made for truth. Okay? And that, the fact that we're made for truth means that we're, we're, we're called to help people come closer to the truth, however that is. Now, sometimes that, that doesn't mean that we say a thing to them, especially, uh, unfortunately, with family members. This comes about primarily through our prayer for them. But whatever the case, we are called to bring people closer to truth, closer to the truth, whether it's moral, religious, whatever, if we love them. If we love them, we want them to know the truth because in the truth they will be free and ultimately truly happy. Okay? And, and, and so that's the, sort of the paradox. You, you always have to respect people. And that's, that's the, we always have to respect people. We, can ne we always have to love people. And we can never, when we're talking with people, trying to bring them to the truth, attack them and, and violate their dignity as persons. At the same time, we have to recognize that it's our duty, if we do love them, to bring them closer to the truth insofar as we are able to. Okay? Now, what I want to do finally is, is talk about the, the specific problems with the errors that I mentioned at the beginning. Um, fundamentally, for all of them, the problem is that none of them accord with typical human experience. None of them are ultimately consistent with, with human life. Okay? Relativism, to begin with. First of all, total relativism. I already gave examples. 2 plus 2 is 4. The earth is round, not flat. Okay, nobody, except for the Flat Earth Society, says the earth is round. Nobody says, well, it's just a matter of, of your opinion. Um, it doesn't really, there is no objective truth out there. It's just your own opinion. Nobody says that. That's a ridiculous position which is rejected by everyone. Secondly, though, we talked about religious um, relativism. And again, because of our respect, desire to respect other people and to avoid confrontation, uh, this is a very common perspective. But again, the fact is, and we've talked about a number of these throughout the various theology on tap sessions, there are objective truths. There are objective truths even when it comes to matters of religion. Okay? 
And we're called to recognize those truths ourselves and then to help other people come to accept that truth themselves. Always, of course, with charity and prudence. Okay? And then finally, moral relativism. Again, there are objective moral standards and everybody, everybody recognizes that. Okay? Nobody, no culture, no civilization, major civilization in the history of humanity has ever said stealing is a, is a good thing. Nobody has, ever, nobody has ever said that deliberately murdering an innocent person just to is a good thing. No society has ever condoned that thing. There's a common moral code that is present in all major civilizations, all major religions, and it's been there since the beginning of human existence, basically. Okay? We all recognize certain moral principles, and, and those principles are objective. They're not matters of our own personal opinion. Okay? And going back to the, thing that, the title of this talk, don't impose your morality on me. If that were the case, then we'd have to get rid of all of our laws. Every single law, doesn't matter what kind of a law, um, theft, stop signs, every law is an imposition of a morality. Okay? What, who says you have the right to tell me to stop at this intersection? If I want to go through it, I'm going to go through it. Nobody says that. They recognize that, that ultimately there is an objective standard that we have to live by. Okay? Every, again, every law is the imposition of a morality. So when people say, don't impose your morality on me, just point them to um, the U.S. legal code, the laws that Congress or our state the legislature passes or our city passes. Those are impositions of morality because morality is simply do this or don't do that. And every law is an instance of thou shalt not or thou shalt. Just most people don't don't recognize that. Ultimately, moral relativism leads to anarchy. If we lived it all consistently, we'd be anarchists. Um, but fortunately, most relativists don't live it out that consistently. Then moral equivalency. Um, the fact is there are some goods that are worse than others. Stealing your child is worse than stealing your money. Okay? Abortion is worse than poverty. Okay, there, are wor there are greater goods, and at the same time, there are greater evils. Okay? Yes, there is a seamless garment of life, a consistent ethic of life, but within that, some of those realities are, are greater than others. Some goods are greater than others. Okay? So when, when um, people propose things like moral equivalency, we have to point out, so are you saying that, this is the first example I have gave, are you saying that kidnapping is just as, or that theft is just as bad as kidnapping? Well, of course not. Well, that's right there. You're acknowledging that some things are worse and better than others. And it holds true with all issues. There's a hierarchy of truths. There's also a hierarchy of goods. All, all truths are true, but some are of greater significance than others. Um, with our faith, the Catechism talks about the hierarchy of truths. Things like uh, the Trinity and the Incarnation are the central truths of the Christian faith, and therefore they have primacy of place in the hierarchy of truths. The same is true with goods, though. Some goods are greater than others, okay? And therefore, when we, when we, when we violate those goods, some evils are worse than others, okay? And finally, nihilism. Although nihilism is internally the most consistent, it remains ultimately the most erroneous, and the, the, the one that, the, the error that when it's lived out um, in its fullness leads to really a completely miserable life. Um, 
in the early 20th century, there, there's a, a, a well, there was a well-known philosopher, Bertrand Russell, an English philosopher uh, who was also an atheist. And in, he wrote an essay in the early 20th century about how um, everything, as, is basically a pro everything, including ourselves, is a product of complete random chance. Um, in terms of how the universe came to be and then how life evolved and so on without a God. It's just complete chance and every single human life has no meaning. A and yet we must stand up in, this face, in the face of this unyielding cosmic despair. Is how I conclude. I mean, it's really, uh, it's a downer basically to read, but that's the logical conclusion for somebody who denies God's existence and then logically the objectivity of truth. Okay? So again, although nihilism may be the most internally consistent, ultimately it is, um, leads to the most diminished life. Right. Thank you for your attention. Um, what I'm going to do now is uh, just open it up for questions. And if you could, just wait for, Dan's got the microphone, just wait for him to get to you. And the microphone doesn't work for the loudspeakers, it's for the taping. Um, so are there any questions about either this talk or anything about the Holy Father? Can you elaborate on uh, the hierarchy of goods? Sure, okay. The question was, can I elaborate on the hierarchy of goods? And I, to do that, I'm gonna go back to the higher idea of the hierarchy of truths. You understand that? Evil. Hierarchy of goods. You do understand the hierarchy of evils, but not of goods. Okay. The hierarchy of goods is the idea that there are some goods that, in a sense, are greater than others. That doesn't mean that things that are farther down the hierarchy are less good. It's that there's a, a greater intensity to the good. So, for instance, um, the good that is my life is greater than the good that is my health. Okay? So when somebody violates my health somehow, they're doing something that's less evil than, violating, than taking my life. Okay? Um, that's evil, but they're, they're mere, they're, they're, I mean, on the other side of the hierarchy of, of evil is the hierarchy of good. So they're, they're sort of mere opposites of one another. So if you could think about the hierarchy of evils, just sort of flip it, is, is the, how we know there's a hierarchy of goods. Um, they're, they're basically one and the same. They're mere opposites of one another, if that helps at all. Okay. Any other questions? Okay. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, so what about false goods? It's somebody's perception of a good. If someone says um, letting all life live, I would say would be the ultimate good. Someone else might say if you abort people that are starving or would be starving to death, to them that's a good. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, but it's not. I mean, I mean, what you, it's a, a false good is not a good. It's an evil. But a false good... Somebody's By perception. Who? Right, exactly. Somebody's perception of good is different than the good itself. Obviously, some people perceive things to be good which are in fact evil. But not to throw well, to throw a wrench in things. Nobody ever desires evil for its own sake. 
every, and this goes actually to what you're saying. Everybody who does something which is evil thinks they're doing something which is in some way good. It is impossible to desire evil for its own sake. In, in other words, somebody who desires something that is evil perceives it to be good. It's impossible for human beings to recognize evil and desire it. We, we, ought, we, we might desire something which is, in fact, really evil, but it's always because we misunderstand it to be a good. So doesn't it depend on what side of the fence you're sitting on? Like, if I don't want you to starve to death, I'm just going to not let you be born. Well, I mean, what we, the, what we have to do is talk with the people and explain how, okay, you're wrong. I mean, and explain the truth to them. Um, the fact that there is disagreement doesn't mean there is no standard. The fact that, yeah, the, the, the example I gave about the Flat Earth Society applies. Just because they think that the Earth is round or flat doesn't mean they're right. And it wouldn't matter if the majority thought it was flat. Right. It's Absolutely. still not right. Truth is not found by taking polls. Yeah. So by the way, I just want to uh, comment on polls. I don't know if you've seen, many of you have seen polls this week, but um, there are a lot of American Catholics who love the Holy Father, but apparently um, want the next pope to change all sorts of things. Um, and um, unfortunately, and I mean this sincerely, unfortunately, they are going to be disappointed. Because John Paul II's teachings are not his own teachings. They're the teachings of the church, and they can't change. And what we, what we again, what, sincerely, what we need to do is to help people understand that things like uh, contraception and, and sex outside of marriage are not John Paul II's own personal opinions. They're the teachings of the Catholic Church and no pope. The next one, the, the one after him, or in four centuries from now, no pope is ever going to say um, that these things are not true. Okay? And I, so I, I, cause some people, I think some people will say, well, they're really going to be disappointed. They are. And the danger that I fear is that ultimately they will despair because they have a misunderstanding of, of the church's teachings. They don't recognize that the church's teachings are what will give them ultimately true happiness. And therefore, they're waiting for something that will never happen. And, and, they, and if they knew it, they wouldn't want to happen anyway. So we are especially, to me, duty-bound at this time to help people, try, help people understand how the church's teachings, especially the church's moral teachings, are not just... Um, external impositions on them, but they are really the means to their happiness. That if you want to live a life of true happiness, live according to these teachings. Now, it's going to be, it's, it's countercultural in a lot of ways, of course. Um, it's, it's initially um, baloney because it's, it's hard. I mean, it involves taking up a cross, but ultimately it is the way to do happiness as the saints show us. The reason John Paul II canonized so many saints is because he wanted to give models to all people, no matter, the, no matter their state in life, no matter what they did in terms of profession. He wanted to give models to show that this, this is somebody who lived as fully as possible the life of Christ, and because of it, they had true and profound happiness. And if you want it, follow their example and, and live Christ's teachings as they're given to us in the church. Any other questions? Oh, two over, yeah.
may I just comment that uh, as someone who's been around longer than most of you, um, the people who are now going to be disappointed are probably descended from the people who were very disappointed at when Paul VI was elected because they had expected that the open window from John the 23rd was going to open all the doors and it didn't. Right. They expected uh, married priesthood, they expected contraception to be yeah. uh, legitimized and they got Humanae Vitae, which is a great document if you haven't read it. Yep, yep, did everybody hear that? Did you hear that over there? Okay, yeah, thank you. You're just wait, raising your hand for your mom. Okay. Any other questions? And I'll be standing here if you want to come up and talk more privately afterwards. But, okay. I don't know if I like the grin you have on your face. Or... Actually, if, just if you could expound a little bit upon what it means to have freedom in the sense that you talked a little bit about what we think it means here in America, you know, in the sense that freedom really means anything goes, I can choose to do whatever I want to do. And also because I know the Pope has always talked a lot about what authentic freedom means and how that involved, is involved with sin as well. Okay. Um, the question is, uh, if I could elaborate a little bit on, on the American misunderstanding of freedom as opposed to the more authentic meaning of freedom that the Holy Father has spoken about. Um, one of the one of the ways to do that is to, there's a difference between freedom from okay well not different there's freedom from and then there's freedom for freedom from and freedom for freedom from is the idea that I to be free means to be free from coercion free from somebody else telling me what to do how to live um, forcing me to live uh, to do certain things or believe certain things and so on that's that's sort of an indifferent understanding of freedom that, that is ultimately indifferent with regard to the truth. And it is the American understanding of freedom. Most Americans, and I would venture to, get, to guess that many of you initially at least, um, that's what most Americans think freedom is. Freedom means somebody else not telling me what to do, mean being able to do whatever I want. It's true, but there's a deeper meaning of freedom, which is freedom for, freedom for excellence. Freedom for virtue, okay? To be truly free means to live a life um, aligned with, in accord with, that which is true. To be truly free means to live a life desiring excellence in virtue and knowledge and so on. That's what true freedom is. Can saints in heaven sin? Yes. How many people think saints can sin? No. Obviously, they cannot. Does that mean they're not free? No. They're freer than any of we, us are. And that gets to the heart, that gets the heart of the distinction. They are truly free because they recognize truth. It's in their face, literally, and, and they, they desire it, and they live according to it. Okay? Truth is not indifer dif merely indifference. It's not just being free from coercion. Truth, or, sorry, freedom is living according to the truth. Does that help? Okay. Any other questions? Okay, again, I'll be around here um, if anybody wants to talk. May 13th, 
Friday the 13th in May is our last Theology on Tap for um, this year until the fall. Father Jim Mason is going to be speaking. Um, Father Jim's always good for a title, and the title of his presentation is The Discernment of Spirits Over a Few Spirits. Um, he's going to be speaking about um, the discernment of spirits in our life as Christians, in, the, in the spirit, our spiritual lives. Okay? Thank you for coming. You're welcome to stick around, eat some food, and talk, and enjoy yourselves, and we'll see you next month.